Welcome to the Faith Church Podcast, where every week we post sermons from our lead pastor, Rick Shule, and guest preachers, as well as other content from church members and staff. We hope you hear something that resonates with your soul this week. Good job, kids. Good job, Abby. I couldn't help but notice that we all clapped after we sang Patient Kingdom, but nobody clapped after Ted read that scripture. That was a little interesting to me. It didn't really like get you moving or a little bit. <laughs> well, t- today we're starting a sermon series called Twisted Scripture. A third of the world's population claim to be Christian. Uh, two and a half billion people around the world look to the Bible for guidance in the way we should be thinking about God and the way we should be living our lives. It's a, what that means is that this book is incredibly important, and in the wrong hands, it can be incredibly dangerous. It motivates and moves a lot of people. And so all this month, we're going to be talking about the ways that the Bible has been misused. And today, I want to start with fear and the end times. I don't know about you, but when I thought that I became a Christian because of fear, I thought I became a Christian when I was 12 years old. Turns out I became a Christian a lot earlier than that because of the love of the community and people sharing the story of Jesus. But when I was a teenager, I thought I was scared into the faith. I've shared this before, but when I was 12 years old, I was invited to a Christian play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Can you tell what it's about? And so in this play, there were about 20 vignettes of of normal people. Um, They would talk about their lives. They would probably talk about how they weren't a Christian. And then they would pantomime a death of some sort. And they would wake up at the pearly gates. And there would be an angel with a big book there. And they would walk up to the angel and they would say, Angel, is my name in that book of life? And the angel would say, no. And then strobe lights and darkness and thunder would come out. And then these like demon type people would come out of a cray paper hell and drag people kicking and screaming into hell. The whole point of this play was to scare you out of your mind. And guess what? It works. When I was 12 years old, a preacher came out and said, are you right with God? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Do you want to be? Yeah. So I went forward and people prayed for me and all these things. And I thought that that's when I became a Christian. But really, I'd been held in the love of the community and shared the story of Jesus my whole life long. And my faith and my love for God started way before that night. Well, that night ends with the pastor telling you, do you know anybody else in your life that needs to hear this and needs to be scared? And I was like, yeah, everybody. And so the next night, I invited several of my friends to come and, and get scared. And they were sufficiently scared. And during the play, you have to ask the people to your left and right if they're right with God. And I, so I asked my friends if they were right with God. They said they didn't know. And they went forward and prayed also. And then... Uh, the play was over, everybody went home, and my friends, who I think were scared into the faith, they didn't belong to a church, they didn't belong to a faith community, and they didn't stay Christian, right? They didn't stay Christian. They had that one moment of fear. I mean, I don't know what stories they're telling their friends. A, a traveling Christian play came to scare them one night and then left town, you know? But that moment didn't develop a faith, much less 
a love for God, right? Fear can be a motivator. Fear can be a useful tactic to get people to do something, but fear rarely produces love. Just because you're afraid of being alone doesn't mean you lo- you're going to love your spouse more. Just because you're afraid of being poor doesn't mean you're going to love your job, right? In order to produce love, there has to be an interaction with the object or the person, with God in this case. Nevertheless, I thought fear was a way of getting people into the faith. I thought that it worked for me. I think a lot of people still think fear, fear is the way to get people to love God as I became a, a, a more in-depth or a, a, a more eager Christian in my teenage years, I started to discover that there was a lot more stuff that we were supposed to be afraid of, right? As a teenage boy, I was supposed to be afraid of all my thoughts, which was a trouble for me. As I grew up, we were supposed to be afraid of the Antichrist and the end of the world. We were supposed to be afraid that people were going to get raptured away before all these tribulations come, and we don't want to be left behind. When I was a teenager, I was working at a burger place, and my coworker Amber and I were talking one day, and church came up, and I asked her if she went to church. And she said, no, but I read the Left Behind series, so I'm good, right? I'm like, okay. I don't know if you know this, but the Left Behind series is this story that outlines the end times in a narrative fashion. The main character, Rayford Steele, which I think is a fantastic name for a main character, Rayford comes home one day and his wife has vanished. And they turn on the news and it turns out like a tenth of the world's population has suddenly vanished, been raptured. Only a tenth. This book doesn't think everybody who calls themselves a Christian is a real Christian. And then these characters have to decipher these clues from the Bible so that they can navigate a world of horrors that they now live in. I believe that that was the truth. I thought that that's the way things were going to happen. But as I grew, as I studied more, I saw that this wasn't really in the Bible. How did this story come about? And as I went into college and a seminary and as I, I began ministry, I realized that Christians kind of end up in two camps about the book of Revelation. Either they're all in with left behind series, end times, thought, rapture, tribulation, antichrist, all these things, and they love it, or they go, ah, I don't know about any of that, and they don't read the book of Revelation at all, right? I don't know what camp you're in. But I think both are really unfortunate because the book of Revelation is this rich, beautiful, artistic, and vivid depiction of the gospel of Jesus in a wild and fantastic way that inspires us to sing. Revelation is the psalm book of the New Testament. It's where we get our songs. We'll sing during uh, communion, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. That's from the book of Revelation. We add it as a part of our communion liturgy. Uh, Thine is the kingdom, power, and glory that we tack on at the end of the Lord's Prayer. That's not found in Matthew where Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. That's found in Revelation that we add on to end the Lord's Prayer. 
Revelation is this rich book that gives so much meaning and hope, but the fanatic end times folks have kind of owned Revelation. And today, I want to take a little bit of it back. I want us to dive in. The book of Revelation is too big to really be contained in one sermon, so I'm going to give a little bit of a primer this morning to hopefully encourage us to look at the end times differently, to look at Revelation differently, and see that our faith is not motivated by fear, but it is motivated by love and hope of what God can do in our world. So, let's start with where, uh, where, did Reve- where did this rapture idea, end times thinking, really come from? Well, before the 1600s, no Christian ever thought to use the book of Revelation to match up to current events, right? Before the 1600s, everybody understood this as symbolic imagery for good and evil. But into the 1600s, and especially in America, people started to think, how is the world going to end? And when is the world going to end? And there was a guy by the name of William Miller. He started a group called the Millerites. That's, that's what you do when you, you name your group after yourself. And he predicted that Jesus would come back, that a trumpet would sound, the skies would part, and everybody would be raptured up. The true Christians would be raptured up in uh, 18, oh, we're in the 1800s, sorry, in 1843. Well, don't worry, it didn't happen. You didn't miss out. It was called the Great Disappointment. So William Miller said to his Millerites, he said, ah, I did the math wrong. We were off by one year. It's going to happen next year, 1844. Guess what? Missed it again. Didn't happen. He goes back and he says, ah, I've done the math wrong. I've messed up a little bit. And so again, 1856, 1863, wrong every time. Finally, the Millerites said, hey, Miller, I think we're done with you for now. We're going to call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists now and do our own thing over here. That's the history of the Seventh-day Adventists. During that time, another guy by the name of John Nelson Darby took Miller's thoughts and he wove together some weird math that's in Daniel chapter 9 and said, ah, this is when it's going to happen and there's this weird week here The math doesn't add up, so this must be when the true Christians get sucked out of their clothes and raptured up to heaven. And he was the first person to come up with this idea of rapture in the mid-1800s. How did it become so popular in American Christianity? In 1904, a guy by the name of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield created an annotated study Bible the first annotated study Bible ever in print. It was a huge bestseller. It was called the Schofield Reference Bible. And in the margins and in the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield wrote in all the story of the rapture and the end times. I mean, you think people believe uh, what they read on the internet, right? Today, if you got an annotated uh, Bible, a study Bible, you're going to believe what's in those margins. And people took the marginal notes for gospel. Later, that became um, the, you know, the source for Hal Lindsey's great, late great planet Earth in the 1970s and the source for the Left Behind series. What's really ironic in the Left Behind series, Rayford Steele goes and he finds that his wife has been raptured away and he finds his wife's Bible. And in his wife's Bible 
are all the notes that she wrote in the margins of what all the symbols mean and a timeline of the end times. Isn't that interesting? The Left Behind series is telling on itself. It's essentially saying that if you read the Bible for itself, you would not put together this fantastic story of rapture and tribulation. Isn't that interesting? I think it's very interesting. Well, that's how we came to have the story of end times, but it's not in the Bible. If you read the Bible for what it's worth, and clearly and plainly, you would not create this story of rapture, tribulation, antichrist, etc. So, kind of with that out of the way, how then should we approach the book of Revelation? What do we do with this crazy, difficult book? Well, I want us to think of it this way. The Gospels tell the story of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to reveal God's will and hope for the world and to begin it in His death and resurrection. That's the story of the Gospels, right? Revelation tells the exact same story, but just turns it up to 11, you know what I mean, all right? So, think of it this way. The Gospels are a depiction of the Gospel story of Jesus, but it's like a Rembrandt painting, okay? It's very realistic. It can make sense, but even Rembrandt paintings are exaggerated. The light and shadows are exaggerated to give depth and meaning, to really let let the artist decide what comes into focus. If the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like a Rembrandt painting, then Revelation is like it's like a Picasso or a Dali. It is wild and crazy, and there's no way that you can take it literally. There's no way that you could take those images and say, that matches up to reality, right? The book of Revelation knows it. It's not meant to be taken literally. Hal Lindsey said that the locusts in the book of Revelation that are the size of horses, those must be the Apache helicopters during the Cold War. No, these they're just giant locusts. They're not meant to be pointing to any real historical reference. They're wild and crazy images. They can't but do these wild and crazy images reveal a truth? Do they say something more meaningful and deeper? See, the book of Revelation is not a list or it's not a collection of some obscure, strange images that some guy wrote willy-nilly when he was in a vision, all right? They're not to be taken Nostradama-esque and try to, like, attach them to real-life events. No, they tell a story in a wild, crazy, fantastical way, but it's the same story as the Gospels. Let me share a little bit of how the story unfolds in Revelation. In Revelation, there's a guy named John. He's the narrator, and he is whisked away to heaven to see what God is up to. In heaven, there is this scroll, okay? And imagine a scroll, right? A paper scroll rolled up on a couple of knobs and a couple of uh, rods, I said, I mean. And this scroll is sealed with seven bands. And inside the scroll is God's hope. For the world is God's will. And John sees the scroll and says, ah, I want to know what's inside that. I want to know what God's will and what God's hope is for the future. 
But he cries and weeps out loud because nobody is worthy to open the scroll. Nobody is worthy to unlock God's heart for us, to show us what God hopes for the world. So John weeps and weeps. And then an angel taps John on the shoulder. And an angel says, actually, there is one. There is one person, the one who's gone through the great difficulty and suffering and who has emerged victorious. He is the Lion of Judah. And so John hears a Lion of Judah. And so he turns and looks and he's expecting to see a lion. The book of Revelation does this over and over again, where an angel tells John something, he hears something, but he turns and looks and sees another thing. So he turns and looks to see the Lion of Judah, this one who is powerful enough to open up the scroll and tell us what God's heart is all about. And he looks and he sees not a lion, but a lamb standing there. And what a strange lamb it is. A little lamb who is standing up and is alive though bears all the marks of being slaughtered and yet this lamb is alive and this lamb has seven eyes and seven horns and this is the image of power in revelation the meek the sacrificial the love this is the one who is powerful enough to open up god's will for us you know what's i think is kind of interesting a lot of those people that try to take revelation uh literally I've never heard any of them take the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns literally for Jesus. I don't think anybody thinks Jesus is up in heaven as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. The book cannot be taken literally. It's not meant to be taken literally. And so the lamb takes the scroll, and then Ted read for us the opening up of the scroll, the seven seals that are opened. And every time a seal is open, we get another vision of something strange. But we haven't actually seen what's inside the scroll yet. All of the opening of the seals is just fanfare for the story, right? It's just like trumpets blowing because we're going to get into the scroll. The first scroll opens up and we get a horse and rider who goes out to make war between countries. The second scroll we open up, we get another horse that causes division and fighting and killing among people in the same country. The third uh, seal, we get... A weird announcement. We have a horse and rider holding scales and announces that a day's wage, or I'm sorry, a quart of wheat will cost a day's wage. Three quarts of barley will cost a day's wage, but don't touch the olive oil and the wine. What does this mean? What is a strange, that's a weird thing, right? A quart of wheat is about your, a, a daily bread. Okay, A quart of wheat is what it costs to eat a day. So he's announcing that the food that you need for one day is going to cost a whole day's wage. That is economic depression. He's announcing that there is economic turmoil and that food is going to co- the food you need to eat for one day is going to cost one day's wage. Who can live under those circumstances? Ah, but don't touch the olive oil, and the wine. The olive oil and the wine is only used by rich people, by the upper class. So this horse announces, this horse and rider announces economic disparity. For those on the margins of society, it will be even harder. But for those that are wealthy and well-off, their wine and their olive oil isn't touched. 
the fourth seal opens up and the fourth rider comes out who carries behind him the death, death and the grave. The fifth seal, we get a vision of those who have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. The sixth seal, we have a great earthquake, a natural disaster. And then the seventh seal, we have silence for half an hour. The author is building up tension and suspense for us to get to look inside the scroll. What do these seals and images mean? Are they future problems that are going to happen? You would only think that if you weren't having those problems in your life. For the people to whom this book was, already, was originally written to, wars between countries, quarreling and fighting inside countries, economic scarcity and, and, uh, and um, depression, sickness and death. As my professor Andy Johnson said in seminary, when have these writers not written? This is life. This is the world to which God is coming to with hope. These horrors and these terrible images that depict a hardship of reality isn't saying this is what's going to happen. They're saying this is the world that we live in. These are our circumstances. We live in a world of pain. We live in a world that is unjust, unfair. We live in a world where violence and hatred seems to rule the day. We live in a world under the shadow of death. This is the world to which God is coming to with God's hope and God's will. The book of Revelation then opens up the scroll. We finally, actually, after the seventh seal, then we get seven trumpets. And then after the seven trumpets, we get seven thunders. So he's really building a lot of tension in the story, okay? After the seven thunders, which literally in the book, it says, and we don't need to hear about the seven thunders. It's like, the author of the story is like, you get the point. Into chapter 10, 11, and 12, we actually get the scroll open, and we get to hear the story that's in the scroll. And the story begins with a woman who is crowned with 12 stars, who is about to give birth to the Savior of the world. Does that sound familiar? Right? And a dragon that is trying to get the Savior, but the dragon can't get the Savior, and the Savior is, is safe and whisked up to heaven. And so the dragon, who is an image for evil, decides to make war with the rest of the woman's children, who are us, right? And then the story of good and evil unfolds, and it ends with a snap of a finger, and evil is put away, and God ushers in a new heaven and a new creation, borrowed from the words of Isaiah 65, where all things will be made right, every tear wiped away, every thirst quenched, every hunger filled, where there will be no more pain and there will be no more death. That is the hope that we hope for in God. That is the hope, the world, the kingdom that we hope for. And it has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Death and evil has been robbed of its power. And when we join with God, we say we believe in that world to come. That world fills us with energy and hope to make it a reality here and now. And so if we believe in a world where everyone eats, 
then we're going to work here and now to end hunger. If we believe in a world where there will be no more pain, then we're going to do everything we can with God's help to end pain here and now. If we believe in a world with no more tears coming, and I believe it's coming, then we are going to work with God to make a world without tears here and now. The book of Revelation is not a guide, like a, you know, a survival guide for the end times. That's not what it's about. It's a message of hope and love for people who live under the threat of oppression, fear, and death. Ironically, the book of Revelation is trying to say, do not fear. Do not be tempted by the threats of the beast or the, or the dragon, evil. Do not be scared into abandoning your God, but remain faithful because God's love will win in the end. That is the story of the book of Revelation. We don't need to use fear to try to recruit people or to make Christians. It doesn't really work anyway. Because to be a Christian is to be in love with God and love with other people. And you can't scare people into that. But you can share a vision of a world made right. You can share the hope of a spirit who is working with people to make that world right. And we can read Revelation without being afraid of all crazy, weird images, but seeing it for what it is, a, fan a fantastical, artistic rendering of the gospel that we already know to be true. There is nothing in the book of Revelation that isn't found someplace else in the Bible. It borrows all of its images and pictures from other parts of Scripture. And like I said, We'll go through a study of it down the road sometime soon. I don't know if you can tell, but I really like that book. And, um, and we can read it with that hope, knowing that this is sending hope to people who live in a land underneath the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the lamb who has overcome the true image of power and love will make all things right. And so... We are invited to join with the Lamb in making that world a reality here and now. As we uh, wrap up this sermon, a couple of questions for you. Um, as we think about fear as a tactic to motivate people, where else in your life do you see fear being used as a tactic to manipulate or motivate people? And maybe look with some skepticism. Anytime someone is trying to use fear to get you to act or spend money or do something, right? What is the tactic that's being employed to motivate you? Is there anything really to fear? There are problems in this world that need solutions, but I'm not going to be spurned into a, uh, a reaction by fear. Instead, we can work together to solve problems together. Secondly, um, as we think about Revelation as like a Picasso or a Dali, uh, think about how art and music and literature, are there other pieces of art that exaggerate or go way over the top in order to, sh to share some deeper truth? Um, think of how art is used in that way and approach the Bible in that way as well. And then finally, how do we align ourselves, our hopes, our desires with God's hopes and desires? What does God hope for in the world, and how do we line our actions with that hope?
That's what we do when we come to worship. We hear again of God's hope and desire and will for the world, and we align our desires and wills with God's will. God, what do you hope for? Let your hopes be my hopes. What do you desire for me and for my family and for my community? Let those be my desires. That's what we do when we worship, when we listen, when we receive communion. We say, God, your ways are pretty good. Your ways are the best. Help me to align with your ways. Let's take a moment now to pray and think uh, about some of these things. Thank you for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. If you would like to find out more about Faith United Methodist Church in Issaquah, Washington, visit our website at www.faithunited.org or call the church office at 425-392-0123. Have a great week.